Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Earnings season continues, third quarter earnings season continues, Apple reporting later this week, and I think that's a good place to start with our first guest, Chris Grisanti. He's the founder and CEO of Grisanti Capital Management. He's here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. It strikes me that we've got tech and we've got everything else, it seems like, in particular. Let's look ahead to Apple. I know you've been enthusiastic about Apple in the past. What are you looking for this week, and how is this company doing in your estimation? So, so this week is really a bridge to the fourth quarter which uh, we think will be this strong quarter. Uh, the, you're, you know, you're covering the quarter that didn't have the new phone and that didn't have the new watch. So what you're looking for is forward guidance. I think what you're going to get is very positive comments about the iPhone X uh, and that sales. I, I ordered my iPhone X on Friday, uh-huh. the first day, <laughs> and uh, seven seven-week wait. Although that means it will still get here in time to be counted in the fourth quarter. And, um, you know, that's an $1,100 phone. Mm-hmm. And if you sell a lot of $1,100 phones, which we think they will, your gross margins are going to go up a lot. So we're excited about that. We don't think that's in the numbers on the street, which has been optimistic, but we think not optimistic enough. Uh, are there other tech companies like Apple that are appealing to you uh, at this point? What, what sets Apple apart from uh, the rest? Well, their monopolistic position uh-huh. in phones is obviously terrific. And as I said to Tom earlier, um, it's really a phone company that sells other cool stuff like iPads and watches. But but it's really a phone company. This is the best phone they've produced really since the 6. So we, we've got a new phone cycle, and it's the obviously the most expensive phone. So we're looking for good things there. But in terms of other companies, Oracle, we think, is a company that's a lot like Microsoft which reported terrific earnings last week. And they're about two years behind in, in terms of moving its software brains to the cloud rather than you know, a package you order. And, and we think the same kind of momentum that's propelled Microsoft to more than double over the last two to three years will, will be a, a breeze behind the stock of Oracle. When you look at, at history at this point, when you see the enthusiasm for tech at this point, the valuations in tech, do you have the tendency to look back to the late 90s? Do you feel the need to? And sort of what lessons can we draw? Yeah, I certainly do. <laughs> yeah. So so there's two lessons. One is, wow, things can get expensive and then get you yes. in trouble. But the other lesson you learn is, wow, you shouldn't be in cash the whole ride sure. up. Because the valuations – now, we stay away from you know the Teslas or, or the Netflix because the valuations there are scary to us value guys. But on the other hand, the Apples, the Oracles, even the Facebooks of the world have the real revenue growth that you don't see as much at those other places. And they also are able to bring it down to the bottom line. So if we can see bottom line and top line growth in the double digits or, uh, God forbid, in, for in Facebook's case, in the, in the, in the 20 30% range, you know, we get some confidence that this has, has legs to it. And so we, we remain there. We're not going to cash yet. But by 98, we were in no technology at all. In the first year, that was terrible as you go from 98 to 99. And then it, it really was terrific place not to be for the next three years. Good morning, everyone, worldwide, coast to coast, those watching World Series baseball. <laughs> Just waking up. Late at night. <laughs> Volmer comes in so early, he watches it. Then Lily comes in, he doesn't even sleep when he comes in. I haven't seen a minute of the excitement because I'm getting a beauty rest. Chris Cassanti with us, Cassanti Capital Management. Let's go to CFA 101, Chris Cassanti. 
General Mills is trading at 18 times earnings. Apple is trading at 18 times earnings. Apple generates 31 cents on the dollar at the EBITDA margin. General Mills does 10 basis points under that 21 cents on the dollar. Why are they trading at the same valuation if Apple mints money? You know, Tom, you know, that's the same question I ask my analysts. The honest answer is because they always have. Uh, What other folks will say is, well, when the economy heads south, people will still buy cereal and maybe not pay $1,100 for a phone. So we're not going to buy a phone, right? Right. Well, we might not pay $1,100 for the high-end time margin phone. Yeah, but this upsets me. This is a a personal (laughs) cause. Apparently. And this goes directly to the Gura household where both children will have Apple Xs. Right. So they go to nursery school properly (laughs) equipped here. You tell me it's $1,100 a phone. No, it's 80% plus people do the monthly plan. Sure. They don't see 1100 bucks. They see $51 XX. As an Apple shareholder, thank goodness. Right. <clears throat> that, that's exactly right. And Verizon actually, will, or AT&T, will make some money off of financing that phone just as, as car dealers off of leasing the cars. That's absolutely right. But at the end, somebody's paying $1,100 for that phone. They may take them two years to pay that money. But, but Apple is getting it. It's going to their bottom line, and life is good for an Apple shareholder. Let me ask you about Disney as we think about the, the device that can convey all of the, the videos and the games and, and, and all of that. What's appealing to you about Disney uh, at this point? How hard is it to ignore the, the deficits or the problems with, uh, with the cable networks? Yeah, so clearly cable is a shifting landscape, and anyone who tells you they have it all figured out is just being naive, we think. So, but, so what we gravitate towards is valuation plus, at the end of the day, something that's really valuable. And in Disney's case, it's unparalleled content. So it's a movie library going back almost 100 years now. It's uh, ESPN, where you can't... uh, ESPN is the only cable channel where you can't kind of watch it on demand because you want to see the game now. So that's a terrific piece of content. Now, how they deliver that content, how they get paid for it, is up in the air right now. So what we're doing is taking a bet that Disney will figure it out, that that content will have value regardless of the delivery mechanism. And Disney, which is now selling at a 10-year low in terms of relative to an expensive market. It's still not a terribly cheap stock at about 16 times earnings. But relative to Disney, where it ought to trade in an expensive market, it's attractive to us. So we see that as a pretty good risk reward. So you were cheered by the news that Disney's going to approach steam- streaming on its own. It's Very cheered. And, 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 and it makes sense because the only folks that can really do that are the folks that uh, I would say, oh, wow, I got to get ESPN. T- Disney, tell me how you're going to do it, and I'll go find it. And that that's an advantage over maybe a Viacom or a CBS that doesn't have as extra, uh, attractive content. When you look at the, the economy as a whole, what are you most concerned about? We hear waiting for this this announcement of who's going to be the next Fed chair. But uh, as a value investor, what are the, the macroeconomic forces? You know, it's a tough question about? because what you're asking is where, where's the black swan coming yeah. from? And of course, it wouldn't be black if I could right. see it coming. Um, but I guess what I'm really concerned about finally for the first time in 10 years is a little bit of fire as opposed to ice. And we were talking about that again in the last hour where, you know, I, th- I think a year from now we're really going to be talking about wage inflation. And we're really going to talk what I'm concerned about about overturning the Apple card is a Fed that's going to have to have successive raises, and we're going to start seeing a Fed funds rate at 300 basis points and 350 basis points. And then, you know, a 22 times multiple for the market is starting to look expensive. This is the second Robert Frost illusion we've had in two weeks, Tom. We had yeah, your two roads divergence. Yeah, just, got I the fire and ice illusion with Chris Crisanti as well. He said fire and ice, and I was going to break in to let it go. go. <laughs> Disney vamp to frozen. Okay. But we're miles. I, I don't even hear any economist, Chris Crisanti, 
talking about one and a half percent target rate, let alone three percent. We are rate hikes away from what accommodative? Yeah, no, I think that's true. But but let's we have less room for error at a twenty-one multiple in the market than we did at a fifteen. You'd certainly admit that. What I'd also say is is the ten-year is now at two point four, where three or four months ago it is at uh, two point one five. Um, mm-hmm. So you're starting to get that move. Whether that's confirmed over the next few months in terms of unemployment, in terms of wage yeah. pressures, we'll see. I think that in the ninth year of, a, of a, an expansion and one that's finally delivering some decent, not great, but decent GDP growth uh, and with 4.8% unemployment, <coughs> I think you're going to start to see – a classic economist would say you're going to start to see wage pressures. Um, finally. The, very, very quickly, the banks – yeah, I, I like the banks, uh, especially if my thesis about higher long rates are, are correct. Yeah. You, I'm not afraid of a flat curve over the next year, 18 months. The other thing on the banks, if you pick the right ones, domestic banks or Wells Fargo, they're going to be tremendous recipients of tax reform. So Wells Fargo has a 36% tax rate, and that can, can drop by a third, and that's a big deal. Okay. Uh, Chris Grisanti, thanks for the briefing uh, this morning with Grisanti Capital Management. Twitter, at least, has been christened Mueller Monday. We're waiting uh, an indictment reportedly from uh, the special counsel looking into Russia's involvement in the U.S. presidential election. Alan Levin writing this up on Bloomberg News this morning saying, multiple reports say at least one person has been charged and could be arrested as early uh, as today. For some perspective on this and the debate over tax reform continuing on Capitol Hill is Terry Haynes. He's the head of political analysis at Evercore ISI and joins us from our 991 newsroom in Washington, D.C. Terry, great to speak with you as ever. And uh, let me put a question to you here. What are you going to be looking for as this day unfolds with regard to this investigation, with regard to this reported uh, indictment? How are you going to get the news and process the news? What are you looking for today? Well, what I'm looking for fundamentally, David, is to see if, uh, firstly, if the Mueller investigation uh, has really anything to do with the core of the Trump Russia business? I mean, if it's if it's some, if, to give you an example, and it's only an example, uh, if it's somebody like Mr. Manafort, for example, but the but he ended up uh, uh, running afoul of uh, Foreign Agent Registration Act uh, filings, or uh, or didn't completely disclose where his clients were coming from, or his money was coming from, something like that. Uh, I think uh, everybody shrugs it off pretty quickly and, and thinks, okay, there's, uh, you know, you know, this doesn't have any immediate impact upon the presidency. There may be something else coming down the line, but here we are, and really kind of no distraction. Uh, if it's a bigger surprise and it goes sort of right to the core of of uh, some of the the Russia issues. Uh, you know, then we've got something else, and then we'll have a uh, market reaction and probably some immediate discombobulation, although I don't think it has any, uh, any significant impact on, uh, on the timing of tax reform. How easily can, can lawmakers shrug this off uh, no matter what comes down today? Um, they're very much focused, Republican lawmakers, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm meaning here, focused on tax reform and getting something through here by the end of the calendar year. They're optimistic they can do that. How, how, how much of a shadow is this casting over their work on Capitol Hill today? Well, today it, it will cast a shadow yeah. in the sense that uh, you know it, it's it's an it can be an inflection point. We don't know whether it will be or not, of course, but it can be. Uh, and you know, but beyond that, uh, I, I think 
you know, shrug it off as I think accurate in the sense that it's not likely to be con- really consequential for what goes on on, on the Hill. Uh, but they won't shrug it off. They'll pay very close attention to it. But uh, the, the shoes will end up dropping on uh, for tax reform really on Tuesday and Wednesday because uh, – the members will come back and start briefing and, and and start trying to move this thing forward. We've continued to say that the that the realistic time frame for tax reform is early in calendar 2018. I look at the schedules that the House and Senate have put out as very aggressive, yeah. and I understand why they would do that, but it's largely aspirational. Is is there a point where tax reform we begin to get it scored or added up or smart people? figure out its ramifications, or does that not matter? Uh, It will matter, Tom, and in the House, I don't think think, uh, Senate Finance Chairman Hatch has uh, made a statement about this, but I know that his House counterpart, Mr. Brady, has, and Brady says that uh, you'll end up having a score before they get to the House Okay, what does that mean? When when we say have a score, is they going to come out and say, this is going to cost X billion or trillion? I mean, is it that simple? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, they'll t- but they will also uh, score it uh, dynamically, which in Washington speak it <sighs> takes into account the uh, the future economic activity generated from it. And you know, so there's there's been a big debate, as you both know, for quite some time about uh, not only will they score it dynamically, but how how aggressively will the dynamics how aggressive will the dynamic score be? In other words, uh, how aspirational <laughs> might it be? One wonders how uh, lawmakers can come up with such a big piece of legislation so quickly. And is it, I just wonder if it's your opinion that they're just using the, the bulk of what Dave Camp drafted many years ago now. Uh, is that the draft? Is that the thing on which this is based? I don't think uh, – let me say two things about that, David. One is that I don't think they've come up with it quickly. I think what they've uh, – what, what they're doing is firstly uh, uh, writing something off the big six – negotiations that culminated about a month ago, number one. Number two, they've been playing around with exactly how to deal with these issues uh, with a great deal of secrecy for quite some time. And, uh, you know, there's an old joke down here, which uh, I I gather you both know, which is uh, that you know something serious if no one's talking about it. And they've been working seriously and nobody's been talking about it uh, for quite some time to to develop what the legislative uh, backdrop looks like. Uh, so I think they've been doing that for quite some time, but uh, and they'll move on. Uh, they'll move on from there to try to uh, kind of have people come together around the pay fors after that. Uh, but this has been in the works for some time, I think. Uh, David, let's interrupt, and it's really good to have Terry Haynes with us uh, from Washington. On uh, we need to be very careful here, folks. But it is uh, Matt Apuzo in the New York Times. David, why don't you bring yeah, this Yeah, Matt Apuzo, a, a, a very widely respected and great investigative reporter for The Times, writing this piece this morning, just out a moment ago. Paul Manafort and his former business associate Rick Gates were told to surrender to federal authorities Monday morning. The first charges in a special counsel investigation, according to a person uh, involved uh, in the case. I'm going to read on here in light of what you're just discussing with Terry Haynes. The charges against Mr. Manafort, President Trump's former campaign chairman and Mr. Gates, a business associate of Mr. Manafort, were not immediately clear but represent a significant escalation in a special counsel investigation that's cast a shadow over the president's first year uh, in office. What can you tell us about um, Rick Gates here, Terry Haynes? And, and again, it seems like, uh, just to, to summarize what we're reading here, we don't know the details of uh, why these two gentlemen have been indicted. And as you said here, that's going to be uh, something upon which this, this turns. Well, that's true. And, you know, as I, as I said earlier, I think, uh, I think Manafort uh, pr- probably has something to do with 
the uh, it has something to do with his uh, his overall uh, entanglement with uh, uh, with Russia and the Ukraine for uh, for for quite a while. Uh, Gates, uh, as I understand it, was a Manafort partner uh, for quite a long time, and had con- in, in it's probably a generation. Uh, it's probably a generation younger than Manafort, and you know, yeah, I suspect they think he had something to do you. with uh, <laughs> the movement of money, or the movement of uh, uh, the movement of money, or the movement of or, or, or the lack of uh, transparency here. I would think that's about it. Within this is is the why here, and you know, it's all speculation, and we're not doing that on surveillance. But they're indicted or whatever, and then is the whole idea here almost like Perry Mason that they spill the beans because they're indicted or is it more discreet in about any one or two individuals i'm assuming and i want to underscore that yes but i'm assuming that what one of the things that ends up happening here is that mr manafort and mr gates are uh, it is suggested to them uh, that uh yeah, you know, that their own involvement in whatever the issue is might go uh, might go better, smoother, easier with less mm-hmm. penalty uh, if they actually provide more information about other things that yeah. uh, that, well, that maybe are more directly affecting the campaign that uh, that yeah. that are of interest to the investigators. This is too important. We're going to keep Mr. Haynes around, of course, from Washington with decades of perspective across the legislative and the executive. I don't know if he's got any knowledge on judicial, uh, David. We'll, <laughs> we'll find out here. We'll, make it, we'll <laughs> make it up here as we go. But seriously, we are fortunate to have Terry Haynes yeah. with us uh, with this news. Again, David, why don't you recap? This is off the New York Times report. Yeah, and we are attributing it to Matt Apuzzo here, who's reporting this for the Times, but indicating that uh, Rick Gates and uh, Paul Manafort have been asked to surrender by the as a result of this grand jury uh, investigation. So the first uh, arrests... I guess you can call it first. First uh, indications here that we're we're seeing movement uh, in that special uh, investigation, and we're going to keep watching this uh, throughout the day here on Bloomberg Radio, of course, as we uh, do reporting of our own here at, at Bloomberg News. But uh, as you mentioned, Terry Haynes of Evercore SI going to join us uh, as we continue to uh, to look into this story mm-hmm. uh, here on, as I mentioned, what was been called yeah. Manafort Monday, the investigation taking a taking yeah. a turn here. Charles Riley over at CNN mentioning that Mr. Manafort quote is turning himself in today to special counsel Robert Mueller. That from a good source at CNN as well. The new modern news. Thanks to our headline team, particularly Hannes Schwawa, uh, for bringing clarity here uh, on the New York Times story. We continue with Terry Haynes. An historic day within the law in Washington as well. Much else going on in economics, finance. Rick Gates. That's a name many people don't know. Uh, looking into him now, I mean, he was an associate of Paul Manafort, uh, protege, junior partner, according to a profile of him in the in the New York Times. Um, and uh, with this firm, did a lot of work internationally, and I suspect that's where we're going to see uh, some of the, the contours of this come into focus. Uh, the work that he and Paul Manafort did uh, overseas, uh, as yeah. I said, we're, we're quoting here from a, a Matt Apuzzo piece uh, in the New York Times that crossed just moments ago, indicating that uh, Mr. Gates and Paul Manafort were asked to turn themselves into Robert Mueller and uh, his team as this investigation continues. And we don't have any detail yet on the, the, the rationale or the reasoning behind that. I'm sure that we'll get that as the day uh, goes on. But the, the early word here, again, as reported by the New York Times, yeah. uh, is that we've had uh, Paul Manafort and Rick, uh, Rick Gates told to surrender to federal authorities this morning. Yeah, from, from a New York Times article of, uh, I'm doing the math four months ago uh-huh. quote mr gates rapid ascent instant into mr trump's orbit and his sudden ejection from it is just one example 
of how these controversies have shaken the Trump administration, which is a good time to bring in Terry Haynes, uh, who's given us wonderful perspective uh, on Washington and particularly on the legislative branch. We're going to promise to get back to tax reform here. Mr. Haynes is never going to show up again. <laughs> Terry, what, what happens when something like this transfixes Washington? Yes. Can it actually slow down everything else? You know, if I, I guess the way I would answer that, Tom, is if it's if it's consequential enough, sure. Uh, you know, oh, come on! I mean, it's not. That, I, I don't want to compare it to Watergate, but come on, no. this is consequential, right? Yeah, you know, well, yes, it is, but I mean, we don't know how consequential. Of course, we don't know what uh, what Manafort's uh, or Gates have been indicted on or why. Uh, so this could be anywhere from a concerns about things that have little to do with the Trump campaign. I mean, Manafort, of course, had these relationships in Eastern Europe for many years uh, before he was ever involved with Trump. And it could be anywhere from that uh, to some sort of direct connection with the uh, the campaign. So right now, I would imagine people are on tenterhooks. But the the thing I would raise with you is that even in, you know, the world of Washington does not stop. Uh, for two, and I'll give you a current example and a historical example. Please. The current example is that it's something I, I've talked a lot to, to both of you about uh, on Bloomberg Air for quite a while. Uh, tax reform is a big deal because it's a big deal to Republican members of Congress who are now in, you know now have majorities and think this is their one big shot to actually get something consequential done. They want to do it for their own policy and their own political reasons. This has very little to the media storyline. Generally speaking, is this is all about Trump and it's Trump's deal and Trump's putting pressure on Trump's doing this, Trump's doing that. In reality, this is an awful lot about. The members of Congress themselves, and not so much about the president. So they will they will continue to do everything possible uh, to move this along. Uh, firstly, and secondly, you know, even in the Watergate days, I mean, I think it's a it, it's understandable, but it's a trope to think that uh, that that the world stopped in Washington during Watergate. Uh, you know, the major legislation that was passed in the two years while the Watergate investigation was going on, and Nixon was resigning, and all the rest in, included everything from uh, the War Powers Resolution to the Endangered Species Act to the original Water Resources Act to the Budget Act that we're all you know that we've all still uh, been dealing with today. ERISA uh, uh, was was uh, was passed in those two years. The Safe Drinking Water Act, a Privacy Act, the original Trade Act, uh, all those things were passed while Watergate was going on. And you know, and I think that if anything. Uh, what may end up happening is that uh, Congress buckles down even more and tries to to finish the work that it really wants to prioritize, and that includes tax reform. So here's what I'm wondering. You have a president running to take a very long trip to Asia at the end of this uh, week. We're due to get legislation from Chairman Brady, I believe, on Wednesday of of, of this week. Now, of course, we have this new news that we've just been discussing, uh, taking up a lot of the oxygen in Washington, at least today, over these next uh, few days. Are lawmakers in the House and Senate cool with that? Are they, are they happy with the fact that they're going to have a president who's going to be out of the country, indeed, out of the time zone here for well over a week uh, and uh, maybe out of this tax reform news cycle for some time? Are they, are they content to be the ones taking the lead on tax reform here going forward? Oh, I think so. Uh, I think what they were interested in having from the president is uh, what I would think of as kind of a st- strategic boosts. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, they're interested in 
in the president uh, applying pressure where pressure is needed, when pressure is needed. Uh, today, I don't think that members of Congress think they need that. Uh, they're putting plenty of pressure on themselves to get things done. So I don't think uh, I don't think having the president around and constantly focused on, say, tax reform or pushing or pulling uh, people uh, will be seen as particularly helpful. This is uh, this is now up to. Uh, right. This part of it, uh, what some people have been calling the vegetables part as opposed to the ice cream part, uh, yeah. this is much more up to the members. Uh, so they'll take it on. Yeah. Uh, David, I should point out for a radio audience, particularly driving coast to coast, that we're beginning to get the obligatory black SUV vehicle leaving, I believe it's Mr. Manafort's house with various people in the car. Yeah, it looks like a lawyer is driving. driving. Yeah, Could be Uber. Could be <laughs> Could be the Alexandria Uber driver, Uber. I suppose. So we should wait. Well, we good, good for you to couch just, that. I think <laughs> just to see. You know, we're trying to to frame the speculation, folks, with fact. It could be maybe it's left, but uh, I don't know. You know, I just want to ask you, Terry, as we continue to, to wade into this. Sort of, you, you mentioned the the work that Mr. Manafort did overseas, and we talked about the the registration that one has to do when uh, he does that. What what are the rules, just in in broad terms here? If you're working with the foreign government, what do you have to declare? What do you have to do? And and what might this hinge on? The rules are very strict, you know, and, and, and you know, one thing I want, uh, want to make sure that people understand is that uh, the kind of business Mr. Manafort was in, uh, by and large, in, in Europe and all the rest as a campaign consultant and the like, uh, it's not unusual for, uh, for consultants of either party to be involved yes. in those, and indeed, you know, many of them were. Uh, yeah, so that should be understood. But the, uh, the, the this is colloquial. The Foreign Agents Registration Act uh, is colloquially termed FARA here, and uh, FARA filings are very strict. Uh, they're very comprehensive, and yeah. uh, and there are, there are civil and criminal penalties associated with misrepresentation. Uh, you do not want to make a, a, a mistake on a FARA filing. Uh, a regular lobbying disclosure act, you know, if I'm working for company X and, you know, I forgot to list some issue that I'm involved in, uh, you know, that's not going to be a death sentence sort of thing. But uh, FARA filings are yeah. are very serious things. And, and Kevin, uh, Sir, Kevin Surley mentioned this this morning. Yeah. This goes back to 1938. Yeah. And it, it basically on K Street, this stuff is deadly serious, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <clears throat> uh, just so, and 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 pretty comprehensive, and uh, as I say, you you you'd better not make a mistake on it. Uh, and any yeah. reputable firm will, right. any, any rep reputable lobbying yeah. firm will go over those filings with a fine tooth comb to make sure they're yeah. entirely correct before they're filed. Let's switch gears, Terry. Here, as we have the uh, the uh, Manafort Gates indictments uh, underway. Uh, back to the uh, your 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 meat and potatoes, which is a legislative process. I must assume the 2018 campaign is it in fully underway now, or does that wait November of this year? I don't think it's fully underway. You know, but my general rule of thumb, and you know, which can vary depending on circumstances, of course. My general rule of thumb is that. Uh, the campaign season doesn't really get into full swing until the end of the first quarter of the calendar year of the election. So uh, I think until you get into March, April, uh, yeah. the, the answer is pretty much no. But after that, uh, campaigns weigh increasingly on the decisions of, of members of Congress and senators of both parties. This is great. Yeah. This Thank you for great. staying with us as we yeah. process this news. Again, the New York Times reporting that uh, Paul Manafort and his uh, former business associate Rick yeah. Gates told to surrender to federal authorities uh, this morning. And as Tom mentioned, we've seen uh, a photo 
uh, on social media of uh, Mr. Manafort leaving his well, house. Well, it's from CBS. I mean, we think we can go uh, for we'll go. social media. <laughs> Charlie Rose says there was a black SUV. There you go. He has his imprimatur on it. Uh, anyway, so we'll continue to follow this throughout the morning. But thanks again to Terry Haynes of Everywhere ISI for the perspective yeah. uh, on the work that Mr. Manafort was doing yeah. uh, in his career and uh, about the news of the day as well. A discussion with Mark Mobius. For those of you of a certain vintage, he is Emerging Markets. He was Sir John Templeton, had the courage, and I mean courage intellectually, to go out and about across borders and actually consider these odd and strange cultures and economies and turn it into the industry, which we all take for granted today. Mr. Milby is holding court at 79 years old. Uh, are you retired from Templeton? Actually, I mean, what I'm, are I'm you? 81 now. You're 80? Well, I said you were holding at 79. <laughs> you could, you, I thank you, you very you're, much. It's yeah. Henry Kaufman was in the other day. He's well-preserved. What's the secret to your vitality? Being optimistic, there I think. That yes. And exercising every day. Wait, wait a minute. Being optimistic, they Being got optimistic. the surveillance casket out there. Oh, I'm going to be in it in two days. <laughs> Mark, um, it's so changed now, passive, oh, active, the walls right. of money. What is different now, the key thing, since you and Sir John invented this? First of all, in 1987, we launched that first fund. $100 million was a lot of money. We had only six or seven markets in which to invest. Mm -hmm. Now we're in 70 markets around the world. We've got 29 billion, and we're small fry compared to the whole industry. The industry is huge. And now the big change is the ETF revolution. Because if you look at the flows of funds, they're really going into the ETFs rather than the yeah. active managers. Yeah. The sharp ratio of the core fund, one-year sharp ratio, is an act of God. It's really quite good. And there's the volatility, one year, two years, lousy, one year. Are you kidding? That was great. Yeah. Is that cyclicality still there, or is it a different calculus now, the ups and downs of emerging markets? It's becoming smoother. In other words, the volatility is not as great as it was before, simply because the markets are bigger. You've got many more markets, and they're bigger. So the movements are a lot less volatile, but they're still more volatile than the U.S. David, why don't you bring in those headlines right yeah, now so as we speak with Mark Mulvey. Apologies here for interrupting, but we're continuing to follow what's happening in Washington, D.C. today. Uh, Paul Manafort and Rick Gates indicted on 12 counts in this investigation that Robert Mueller is conducting, uh, and charges include... Uh, conspiracy against the United States and money laundering uh, as well. So we're getting more color on sort of what led to this. Uh, and as Terry Haynes of Evercore ISI said to us just uh, about an hour ago, uh, this is what matters here. Uh, if if these were smaller charges uh, related to taxes or something like else, that'd be one thing. But uh, the fact here that we see this conspiracy charge, I think, right. uh, indicates there's something bigger uh, at play, Tom. And Mark, that goes, you know, taking the politics, I don't want to bring it over to your world, but the rap, if you will, in emerging markets is it's done by secret decoding uh, in Hong Kong and other places. How is the transparency, the big six accounting transparency of these equities? And for that matter, the legal background of these different companies, is it more transparent now? Much more transparent. And it, mainly because there are more and more players, there are more people who are demanding information. You know, ESG is the big, big thing nowadays. What is ESG? Environmental, social. Yeah. Governance. And sustainable. And all, yeah, governance. 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 And, of course, those of those three, ESG, <clears throat> governance mm -hmm. is the key word. 
because that's the, what is really hitting emerging markets in a big way. We are demanding more disclosure. Mm-hmm. We're demanding more transparency and so forth. How does Mark Mobius parse out EM? Do you parse it out as frontier economies, EM, N11, et cetera? How do you partition your world? Well, emerging markets in general, and then within the emerging market space, we have a frontier pocket, so to speak, which is relatively small, mm-hmm. but very, very prospective in terms of growth. Because if you look at the 10 fastest growing countries in the world, all of them are emerging markets and half of them are frontier. So it's, it's quite remarkable to see what's happening in the frontier space. Are the drivers of economic growth in developed and developing economies different when you look at what's driving emerging markets now? Uh, is it politics principally? Uh, is it central bank policy? Uh, is it fiscal policy? What, what do you see as the main drivers when you paint with a broad, broad brush your emerging markets? The main driver and the reason why we're in business is because of the philosophy of government has changed. They're now moved from communist, statist, government ownership to privatization of state-owned enterprises. That's the reason why we're in business. And this is a remarkable development, and you have to really congratulate the IMF, the IFC, World Bank, for pushing this concept and saying to these countries, look, you want to grow? You've got to privatize your state and enterprise. You've got to open up your market and make it a market economy. That's the reason why China is growing, because they've adopted the market economy model. How much standardization is there as a result of the multilateralism that, that you describe, as a result of that, that push? Uh, by having the IMF, the World Bank, cheering for this or making it happen, uh, is it easier for you to enter into a market or to see how a market uh, is doing? It's much easier for us to go in when a government is saying, look, we're going to privatize, we're going to list uh, state-owned enterprises, we're going to open up the market to a more free enterprise environment. But, of course, then we've still got the problems of politics because mm. there's some of the old apparatchiks who don't want to give up power of their state-owned enterprises. And then, of course, we have the legal system, which is different in every country. Uh, we'll come back here in just a moment, but on the issue of passive investing, does it change how we approach emerging markets? Are, are you at all concerned that less research or less engagement goes into the process if you have a more passive approach uh, to investing? Of course, it's a, it's a sea change mm-hmm. because what happens is that you're going to have on one side the ETF space, which is just following the leader, mm-hmm. following the index, and the other side you're going to have active. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I'm kind of happy, even though we're not getting the flows of the size of ETFs getting, I'm very happy with this change because now it's forcing us to say, look, we're not following the index. Mm. We cannot look at the index now. We've got to do our own thing. What's your R squared to the index? Oh, God, I don't have that number in front of me. (laughs) Roughly. But but basically, Mm. we're moving away from the index in a big way. I want to come back and talk economics with the gentleman uh, with a parchment from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. That would be Mark. Uh, Mobius, we will do that terrific news flow out of Washington. We're going to get back to Washington and Mr. Mueller here in a bit, but we're enjoying the presence of Mark Mobius. Uh, Those of you of a more vintage uh, character will know that he and Sir John Templeton single-handedly invented, along with the marketing genius of John Galbraith uh, years ago, domestic and international blue chip investing. And then Mark Mobius courageously went out where no others were and invented emerging market funding as well. You have parchment from MIT. Who did you take your PhD with at MIT? I was the, with Samuelson. He was at that time. But mm-hmm. uh, Ithiel de Solapool, I don't know if you mm-hmm. remember him. Sure. He was a great, yeah. great professor. Yeah. Is there were a number of very good emerging market type professors there. At that time, they were struggling with the mm-hmm. issue of what makes countries grow. Of course, the emerging market 
name was not invented yet, but they were really struggling yeah. with that issue. Is the economics that underpins your investment work, has it changed or is it the same old rules of Professor Samuelson, 1948? Haven't changed. They're really the same. I mean, the principles are basically the same. And they're the principles that we're trying to push forward in these countries still today because there's so many people who mm. want to have a statist, government-owned economy, basically. That would define China. David, why don't you jump in there? Yeah, I wonder how your, your uh, engagement with China has changed. As you look for opportunity there, uh, we hear from guest after guest after guest, you have to look inland uh, more to these uh, quote-unquote smaller cities, which in actual fact are way larger than anything <laughs> most people have, been, have visited. Yeah. How has that, your level of engagement changed? How's the way that you approach China changed over these last 5, 10, 15 years? Well, first years? of all, if you go back, you must remember when we first were in China, we could only go to one place, mm. Guangzhou Trade Fair. Remember that? Every year, and I think it was October, we'd get into China, do some trading, and that was it. That was it. Now it's all over China. We can travel freely in any of these cities in the hinterland along the coast. Of course, I mean, even though people tell you you should go to the interior cities, the reality is that the action is in Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen. Those are the, the big cities where the action is. Are you able to get a, a clear sense of what's going on there? We watched this party congress unfold over the last week, week and a half, and, and uh, tried to piece together you know, what that might portend for the economy uh, of the country. Back to what we were talking about earlier about uh, statistics and standardization and knowing what's going on. Do you have a clear sense now of, of what's happening with the Chinese uh, economy? Uh, well, in the sense that, yes, in the sense that it is a planned economy. This is what I've been trying to tell people who are worried about the debt crisis in China. I tell them, look, it's a planned economy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That's the key. And you've got to remember that because if there's any possibility of a crisis, the Communist Party will step in and rescue. Does that make it less risky or, or more risky, having a planned economy like less that? Less risky uh -huh. for us, definitely. For, for the time we've got left, Mark Mobius, for our CFA crew that listen to us, <clears throat> and we say good morning to all of you worldwide from the CFA Institute. I should say I'm a, a member and... I think my dues are paid. Uh, Mark, the, the, the importance of hedging emerging markets in foreign exchange. What a back and forth this has been. Does hedging currencies add benefit to total return? Uh, we've found that it doesn't add uh, if you're going to spend money to hedge. However, what we do is we pay attention to what we think the currencies will do, and then we invest accordingly. So the obvious simple example, if we look at a weakening currency, let's go to mm -hmm. exporters because they're going to benefit from this sort of thing. Just over the weekend on Thailand, mm -hmm. and we've seen, of course, the passing of a king and a nation mourning their <clears throat> king. Uh, you've always been an optimist, you say. Can you be optimistic on Southeast Asia and particularly on Thailand? Mm -hmm. uh, particularly Southeast Asia because they're growing at an incredible pace. Are they growing within the rule of law? Do you see a a new vigor there to emulate tiger economies of another time and place? Well, you see, what happens is when you have a market economy, you are being forced to adopt proper legal structures. Otherwise, you can't operate. So that's the beauty. So then, for example, let's say Vietnam government privatizes a company. Then there are shareholders who are demanding certain corporate governance. Then the legal system has to react and reform. So this is what we're seeing around the world. Mark, let me ask you lastly about Latin America and Venezuela in particular. 
Uh, we've seen them make another debt payment. Uh, the odds are increasingly stacked against them doing so, but it seems like something of pride that they continue to, to do that. We've seen the sanctions continue to be leveled on that on that country. How do you approach a place like Venezuela, uh, recognizing the fact that there aren't many like it at this point? But uh, is, is there opportunity still in a country like that? And how do you balance the, the ethical uh, difficulties of, of investing in a country where you see such difficulty between the people and the government itself? Well, there, there are opportunities, no yeah. question, but uh, probably not yet. Yeah. I remember when Mr. Chavez came in, we were heavily invested mm-hmm. in Venezuela. And I said to my guys, let's get out, because he's making it very clear He's going to take over companies, and this is anathema to what we're about. So we got out, and luckily, and you know, we didn't suffer any losses. So until the government changes its stance, it doesn't make any sense to go into a country like that. Mark Mobius, thank you so much. Thank Wonderful you. to see you Great again. To see you, yeah. Mark Mobius is with Templeton. That's all that needs to be said. Executive Chairman for the Templeton Emerging Markets uh, Group as uh, well. Uh, this could not be more well-timed. With us, the defense attorney, Cass Sunstein. Oh, excuse me. No, you're not. Sorry. Lost, lost my head there. It would be a perfect day to speak to an attorney about the festivities of Mr. Manafort. We'll get to that in a bit. And David Gurr is going to bring in this exceptionally important little book, which is big, big important now. But, David, I told myself that when Cass Sunstein would sit with us that I must bring up the essay of the year. Uh-huh. The Scalia I knew, the Scalia I knew will be greatly missed. I want to congratulate you on the essay. We get tons of hate mail when you're on uh, from the <laughs> usual ilk, and yet you went to bat for their guy. Explain to us in your wonderful essay of February a year ago the, the Scalia that you knew that will be missed. Well, I think he was one of the three greatest writers in the history of the Supreme Court. Um, He was a person of tremendous wit and brilliance. Uh, There was one thing he cared about. I'll get to him as a person in a moment. But there was one thing he cared about as a judge more than anything, and it's the rule of law. And that's a pretty good thing to care about more than anything. He's often misunderstood by people who are his political opponents uh, because his real focus is on, you know, you have to follow the law. You have to follow the rules. And that's uh, why he was very favorable often to criminal defendants, saying the government Mm -hmm. violated the rules with respect to them. It's why he protected the right to burden the American flag. He said we have the free speech in this country. Uh, He was a a great judge in my view. As a person, he was... uh, funny and kind uh, after Justice Breyer was chosen as um, part of the Supreme Court and then and Ruth Bader Ginsburg in short succession he put his arm around me and he said Cass, uh, first Ruth and now Steve it's almost <laughs> enough to make me vote Democrat <laughs> with an emphasis on the almost within this almost is the history being made today where at the third district court in Washington next door is the John Marshall Park, the in honor of the gentleman that founded our law. Do you believe that the law of the nation is good standing to test the, these testing times? I do think so. The, partly because of John Marshall, partly because of Antonin Scalia, uh, we have a legal system that has uh, been robust. 
against multiple challenges from presidents, from congresses, uh, from judges themselves. And it's possible in the next years we'll see um, pretty severe tests that we all hope not. It's possible. Uh, but what we got back in uh, the 18th century has been, you know, a rock. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you just about uh, your sense of how well uh, Americans understand the legal process and the legal system and indeed the Constitution uh, as well here in 2017. And maybe that's a good segue to get into uh, the issues that you raise in, in, in this new book. But as all of this unfolds, do you sense a level of engagement uh, that's adequate uh, to what's happening here? I think so. And uh, the intensity of interest in, for example, are we going to stick with the Affordable Care Act or not? What are we going to do about immigration? Uh, How should we handle threats from North Korea? That's a positive in a era of what is not a positive, which is polarization. So I think citizen engagement with the legal system, the political system, uh, is, uh, at least among many millions, very high. And that's kind of... uh, that's really something to work with and be proud of. Uh, the book, as Tom mentioned, is Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide. And I'll start with a caveat that you have at the front of the book uh, as well. And that is, uh, with the goal of neutrality in mind, I'm not going to speak of any current political figure. I'm going to focus on the majesty uh, and the yeah, mystery the of word, impeachment the under the U.S. Constitution. I'm, I yes. want my money back. The T word isn't in the index. Okay. <laughs> the word the. the, the, the you don't need go. that in the index. <laughs> it's all over the book. To the point of engagement with this, uh, something that you highlight early on, it's a through line throughout the book, is... is um, how important an issue impeachment was. We don't treat it as such today, but uh, at the time the Constitution was being argued over and written, uh, this was the subject of fierce and passionate debate. Yes. So without impeachment, probably we wouldn't have gotten the Constitution at all. Keep in mind the Constitution was ratified against the background of the American Revolution. If you read the Declaration of Independence, Gosh, if it doesn't read like articles of impeachment. And that's no coincidence because the Americans, before we started fighting in Concord and Lexington, had actually issued shots in the form of impeachment proceedings against people who were following orders from the king. Impeachment was a homegrown American institution in the second half of the 18th century. And without impeachment, the idea of having a powerful president, which was itself super controversial, it was Hamilton's smashing victory at the convention, uh, he wouldn't have enjoyed that victory unless impeachment was available. So we've kind of lost sight of it, but it is a uh, necessary condition for having the republic that was bequeathed to us. How plastic a term was it or the the, the rationale for it? You look at state constitutions or documents like that at the state level uh, as it's being hashed out at the, the federal level or at the, as the constitution is, is being written. How much agreement or unanimity was there about what would be something that would be uh, – w- would merit a call for impeachment? Um, by the time the constitution got ratified, there was a ton of agreement – Before ratification, it was a bit of a chaos. So I say a bit of a chaos, meaning some people thought we shouldn't have impeachment at all. That was a small minority view. But they thought the president elected every four years. That's enough. Other people thought the president should be basically uh, subject to removal by Congress if it saw grounds. Mm. That was a minority view also. Uh, And and in between the two polls were some people who thought treason and bribery Mm. and other people who thought treason. 
Bribery, right. bribery and maladministration. And high crimes and misdemeanors was kind of the cavalry that solved everything. And once they had high crimes and misdemeanors as a formulation, right. I say they had a pretty crisp and well-defined understanding. We're going to come back here and continue this discussion, but a simple question. What's the number one thing you see wrong in the media analysis and the citizen analysis of this word impeachment. The number one mistake is to think that if the president has committed a crime, he is impeachable. And if the president hasn't committed a crime, he isn't impeachable. The president can be impeached even if he hasn't committed a crime. And if the president jaywalks or uh, steals from a store, he's not impeachable, even though those are crimes. <laughs> Have you become, you've moved to New England. Have you become a New England Patriots fan? Uh, absolutely. Tom Brady is the greatest football player and probably the greatest yeah. person. That might be an impeachable offense. <laughs> that's an impeachable offense. And, 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 and if Brady runs for president, I think yeah. unanimity would be a good idea. Oh, Very go. good. It's an impeachable offense. <laughs> doesn't matter what his political views okay, you are. Can be quiet. Tom Brady. <laughs> Cass Sunstein with us. And can't say enough. The tag team of Cass Sunstein and Noah Feldman yes. writing for Bloomberg View is just a treasure on our law, trying to craft as smart people uh, into English. There's so many things we get wrong about our judiciary. We'll come back. We'll talk about the Third District Court in Washington, where history is made uh, today, and also continue our discussion on this glorious little book, Cass Sunstein, Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide. It's magical. Not one word on the President of the United States in it. Too much to talk about with Cass Sunstein. What Bloomberg Surveillance is about is uh, you get lucky, and we do that by booking weeks in advance, days in advance, and then the news flow catches up with us. Uh, I made a joke about it earlier, but of course we will tread lightly on uh, other aspects of law from Professor Sunstein's expertise. And with that, David, why don't you grill <laughs> Professor Sunstein about bankruptcy uh, his, law. His bankruptcy bankruptcy law, yeah. criminal law. law. Of course, your background is in constitutional law, but uh, you know you write in the book, uh, the book here on impeachment, that um, you came to study this deeply because uh, back during the Clinton administration, you were being asked about it. it. Came to be something that a lot of people were focusing on. So, bearing that in mind, as we get these uh, indictments today, as we get a lot of uh, legal documents, what are you going to be looking for? What's your counsel to somebody who is uh, interested in understanding the the import of what's happening today and wants to find his way through the uh, the thorny legalese that we're going to see here from uh, from the federal government? I think there are two tracks. The first and the more important is the connection to the White House and the campaign apparatus. So if this is a kind of one-off about a guy who was engaged in something wrong or two people who were engaged in something wrong, then that's not good. But the connection with the campaign in the White House might be marginal. That would be kind of the best case for our uh, our system, let's say. Um, if it's the case that the connection with the White House and the and the campaign operation was uh, not marginal, then then we're talking about something of more gravity. So that's kind of track number one, and that's the most important in terms of history. There's also, you know, an independently important thing if someone who worked for the now president of the United States was engaged in criminal acts uh, to figure out exactly what they were. If they involved financial self-dealing or something, that's one thing. If they involved uh, something that involved other countries, uh, especially in a way that involved currying favor or interacting in, with them in a way that isn't, let's say, uh, fully patriotic, then we find something that is not just criminal but that is um, alarming. Uh, not, not we're stipulating because of the president but because of uh, the person who's, who's under criminal uh, inspection, let's say. 
Tom, I know you want to ask about the uh, the newest Nobel laureate, but quickly before <laughs> before we do, I'm that, reading the indictment. Right right oh, now. you're reading the indictment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, help us understand. Do you think that the founders and the framers would have been surprised by how little we've exercised this part of the Constitution in terms of all of the effort that went into crafting it, getting the language right? Uh, impeachment was not principally or exclusively targeted at the, the presidency. It could have been for cabinet officials and others uh, as well. Would they be surprised by how infrequently we've had to exercise it over the course of our history? I think they would, and I think they'd be pleased. I think their initial reaction would be, well, our other safeguards must have worked. I think then they'd say, because they were kind of arithmetically excellent, they would have said three out of 44... <laughs> That's not so low. And so I don't think they would have thought it was, you know, marginal. And then they would have added some version of the old phrase, the importance of the sort of Damocles is not that it falls, but that it hangs. So the importance of the impeachment mechanism is not that we invoke it necessarily. It's that it's present and it deters the worst forms of wrongdoing. We must, uh, in honor of Mr. Thaler and folks, we were uh, pleased that Richard Thaler could join us on his way to a Cubs game uh, in Chicago (laughs) after taking the Nobel Prize. This was no surprise to anyone, but what is the distinction of Richard Thaler in Chicago behavioral economics compared to the good work of Kahneman at Princeton and Tversky, of course, Amos Tversky, and also Schiller at Yale. What's the Chicago, what's in the air out there that makes it different? Okay, well, uh, Daniel Kahneman, who's very much with us, and Amos Tversky, who died young, uh, are slash were psychologists. Mm -hmm. They were kind of mathy psychologists, but they thought, how do heads work? What made Thaler, what makes Thaler different is he's an economist. So he thinks, how does economic behavior work? What do investors do? How do consumers behave? Uh, How do sellers of products uh, incorporate, let's say, deviations from rationality? Why is it kind of dumb in a storm to raise the price of umbrellas? Thaler kind of nailed that because people who sell umbrellas know if you raise the price of umbrellas during a storm, a lot of people are going to get mad. And that's not going to be good for business. And that idea that surge pricing, let's call it, can backfire on the seller, that is kind of Thaler's invention. The idea that people have different mental accounts in their head, this is vacation money, this is retirement money, this is kid money, this is fun money, this is, oh my God, I have to pay my bills money. That is Thaler's invention, and that's an economic concept. So he's, his, uh, he's unique in many ways, and he's an economist. You hold a position now that gives you latitude to teach in any number of the constituent academic colleges at, at, at Harvard, different uh, graduate schools and, and, and the like. Um, you clearly had a great relationship with, uh, with Richard Thaler as well. What worked well for you in terms of that sort of cross-disciplinary approach to, to academia? It sounds like it's still a very rare thing that you would get an economist collaborating with somebody with background in law or psychology or English or any other uh, subject. Why did it work so well? How did it work so well for you? And how do you replicate that across the academy? Well, if you're thinking about law, like environmental law or law that's designed to protect consumers, it's kind of good to think that about how people behave. So if it turns out that consumers are going to be too optimistic and then buy products that are going to make them sick, 
you probably should know about that when you're thinking about the legal system. Or if it turns out people are going to get really scared about some environmental risks and not at all scared about others, that bears on what the law is doing. So I thought, and I'm one of a large number of people who thought, you know, this new material and what people actually do, mm-hmm. that is indispensable to think about our legal system. Can our nation move back to the middle? We've had other eras, I think, of Blaine in 1890s into Teddy Roosevelt. Can we move back to the middle? Do we have the structural mechanisms to uh, migrate back to Olympia Snow and Scoop Jackson? Well, you referred to Amos Tversky, who said he's an optimist, and it's rational to be an optimist, because if you're a pessimist, you suffer twice. Once when the bad thing happens and once when you think about it. What would you do? Talk to my wife this morning? <laughs> so, 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 uh, not, no, but she, if she's an optimist, uh, good for Mrs. her. Mrs. Keene is an optimist. So, so with respect to moving back to the middle, I think the objective judgment is that that's uh, extremely challenging, especially given mm-hmm. the operation of social media and the fragmented media market now. On the other hand, right. the arc of history suggests optimism yeah. makes some sense. One final question back to impeachment. A Citizen's Guide. Should President Clinton have been impeached? Absolutely not. It was an unconstitutional impeachment. Why? Because it wasn't a high crime or misdemeanor within the meaning of the Constitution. Then how did they get that far in the process? It was a political um, uh, uh, errand which succeeded. And that's not to say that what President Clinton did was good or anything close to good. It was bad, and it was worse than bad, but it was not an impeachable Mm -hmm. offense. It wasn't an abuse of presidential authority as the Constitution's ratifiers understood it. And I think it's important. You bring up in the book early on uh, questions one can ask himself uh, as you weigh whether or not to approach impeachment. What are they? How do you approach impeachment from a neutral perspective? There is so much uh, political drama and excitement surrounding what's happening uh, at this point. How do you get through that noise? One, one way to think about it is imagine you loved the current president. Uh, would you still want him to be impeached given the act which you think is impeachable? Or imagine you hate or dislike the current president. Would you think he wasn't impeachable given the conduct that he's accused of engaging in that is maybe impeachable? So to put entirely to one side your Mm -hmm. political views is a a really excellent reality check. Are the New York Jets a high crime? Uh, if they challenge the uh, New England Patriots, then they are. I think as of this moment, they are innocent. And, uh, <laughs> it's a binary. Uh, it's a completely binary fine. Thank you. Football <laughs> analysis with Cass Sunstein. Uh, this is wonderful. I really can't say enough. It, it is, it's, the, the last book I saw this approachable was a guy named Joseph Nye, uh-huh. who I believe is ensconced on the Charles River <laughs> as well up in Boston. Cass Sunstein. Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide. It is a fabulous history lesson on one of the most confusing and emotional words within the American uh, experience. Cass Sunstein, Impeachment, rave review. I just can't say enough about it. And Mr. Trump does not make an appearance in the book, which is a major credit to Mr. Sunstein. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide 
on Bloomberg Radio.